0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, we're winding our way through what book? Philippians, yeah. Enduring Joy, it's, uh, it's been a great study. We've got a little ways to go yet, but we're almost done. We're in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, and uh, I'd like you to turn there or turn on your phone, however you do that. Stan and Carol Rubisch, right down here in front. Be sure and greet them as, before they head back to the Arab Emirates as our representatives and mission partners. Great to see you guys here. How many congregations do you have meeting in your building? 40 congregations meeting in their building. How many language groups? 15 or 16 different language groups. I mean, nothing like reaching the nations to go to, it's amazing. Thank you for, for, for your faithfulness. Philippians chapter 4, I actually want to bring back in chapter 3, verse 20, to pick up, Jay preached this last sermon last week and did a great job, but to give context here, chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. This way, dear friends, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche, be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. in your minds, in Christ Jesus. This is our passage to ponder together this morning. What a great passage. Folks, in the context of joy, how to deal with anxiety, unity, conflict. I mean, he's just bullet-pointing a bunch of stuff. It's like he's running out of paper and getting a bunch of stuff down as he finishes up this amazing time. Joy. C.S. Lewis wrote this biography of his early life Just called it Surprised by Joy And he talks about all the difficulties He went through as a boy In a very very difficult home And then he talks about The kind of climax of the book Is when he is Overtaken by joy As he's riding in a train And just suddenly it was there Hard to define Really impossible to define But very 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 real <clears throat> And I commend this little book to you to get a picture of what a, an incredible man of God's story is like and f- having joy find him. That's what joy looks like, isn't it? For those online, uh, there's some pictures. You can download the PowerPoint and look at it. I, I, you know, I really like that. Uh, I'm from Albuquerque, and the balloon festival happens down there. I don't know how they did this. I think it's Photoshopped, but it's great anyway. Is that joy? No, that's not joy. This is joy. This is Joy Love Brashears, my granddaughter. And she and I went down to San Jose last week. I was teaching down there. So she decided to go on an adventure. We did the Regeneration Forum down there. Had the Bible Project guys, the headliners. So this thing outside the coffee shop there. And she found these dinosaur tail plants. And we were laughing together about that. And uh, she had her very first Indian food ever, 15 years old. And she liked it. Finding the perfect mask for the ball. And then finding the perfect dress for the ball. And everybody's saying, what a good grandpa to take your granddaughter shopping. Listen, it was great. I loved it. It was so fun. And then flying first class both ways. She did. First class lady. That's joy, you see. That's what joy is about. I found this. And it says it so well. What is joy? Well, part of joy is darkness dispelled. Doesn't mean it's gone. Doesn't mean trouble's non existent. But it means its power is dispelled. How so? It's dispelled because the light of everlasting life lit up in the soul. Joy, fundamentally, of course, comes with that reality in the presence of Jesus Christ and his grace. Joy is our theme through this whole book we've been unpacking, and we'll continue that into our Christmas theme, which follows this joy. Why? Well, the fundamental thing, and this is the foundation, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I think here he's not focusing so much as that we go to heaven when we die, though, of course, that's true. The point is we're citizens of heaven now. Now. We're citizens of heaven, that that realm where God is king, Jesus is real, and grace and peace and hope and love are the values of that kingdom, and we're a part of that. And we come together there standing firm in the Lord. It's an amazing picture. So we stand firm as citizens of heaven who experience this joy, and the reason we experience this joy is because we know, I know who I am. And that's so important, everybody's trying to tell me who I am. And most of the voices that are doing that are speaking lies, as we sang in our worship songs. They're trying to tell us about inadequacies, how, you know, you're a fat pig. You can't do that. What do you even try for? All those kinds of voices, they're not focusing on who we are. They find a little bit of truth in our brokenness and our failures and build that up into your identity That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to point out the power of his grace in us, the reality of the Holy Spirit, the new birth that we have, that life that comes from his resurrection, as we just sang. We know who I am, and I also know whose I am. Our world tells us you define your own life and then enter a relationship, and the Bible says, no, 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 no. You're defined by your relationships, fundamentally, what's your relationship with God. And if you've got sin in your life that's breaking or blocking that relationship with God, it's going to have a real impact on your joy. When you know whose you are and revel in the fact that you're a child of God, daughter, son of the Lord Most High, it makes a whole difference in how you approach your life. Because you keep coming back to that. Stand firm in the Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven. These are foundations that, because we know then where home is. Sherry and I were down at the First Image Gala last night. Uh, some of you were there as well. Celebrating the work that that marvelous organization does to help people find life. And as I parked the car away from the middle the ballroom down in inner southeast and walked back over, I walked past several homeless people on the sidewalks there of inner southeast Portland. I opened the Oregonian this morning, and there was a story about rural homeless people. And I think, what a tragedy that people don't have homes. But then I think, how many people have a place to go sleep? They have a house, and perhaps they own that house, but they don't have a home. Home is a place where you can go and be yourself and be loved and supported. Home is a place where you can go when life crashes in on you and you can find support. It's never on Facebook. It's always in live relationships. It's not in the Instagram painted pictures though I'm active on Instagram and love it because I find grandkid pictures there. But that's home. And we also know what lasts. The weekend with Joy down in San Jose was a marvelous time. It was a high point in our relationship. But it was two and a half days. The relationship that we have as grandpa-granddaughter, that goes on. We know what lasts. We know whose we are. We know who we are. We know where home is. That's the foundation of joy. That's the foundation that we talk about. So I unpack this a little bit. Because a big piece of joy, as Paul unpacks it, is unity. And we have no idea who Yodia and Syntyche are. We don't know who the true companion is. We don't know what the conflict they were in was about. And actually, that's all good because we get hung up on the details and miss the point he's saying. He says, I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche because unity is so important. It's worth fighting for. It's worth pursuing. It's worth investing in. We make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, Paul says over in Ephesians. Be of the same mind. And immediately, your mind hyperlinks back to earlier in the book, chapter two. Remember, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, if there's any encouragement, be united with Christ, any comfort, his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded. It's almost exactly the same phrase in Greek. Why did that happen? Because of who Jesus is and what he did and the power that we have in it. Forgiveness that comes through his death. New life that comes through his resurrection. Freedom from the enemies that comes from his exaltation. That's gospel work. Be like-minded is such a foundation that comes from Jesus Christ and that is always, of course, in the Lord. It doesn't mean we agree on everything. But our unity, our, con- our conflict ending comes from that commonality we have in the Lord. Again, reminded of who we are and whose we are, keeping that front and center in our thinking and in our living. And look at how this does. He pleads with each of them. He doesn't take sides. He looks for points of commonality of being in the Lord. <clears throat> He asks a helper, whoever that is, the true companion, because you need help when conflict comes along. They're in a community there. And it's a gospel community of coworkers, all of whose names are written in the book of life. And I think, okay, what's the process? How do you deal with conflict? Because it's a reality. There will always be in conflict. Why? We've all got snake venom in us. We all have our ways of doing things. Conflict can be a good thing if it's done well. It can be disaster if it's done badly. So I think a process, and I think beginning here, calling out of what Paul is doing, is speak with grace. Speak with grace. Speak with affirmation. Speak with affection. We see Paul doing as he approaches Eurya and Syntyche. And I think when conflict happens, How much Holy Spirit power does it take to speak like that when your emotions are ramping up? It takes a lot. It takes a lot. It's so easy to get off into my way and my way of doing things and my point. But see, if we speak with grace, affection, affirmation, if we do soft start, put in the context of relationship, it makes all the difference in the world. thing here is understand each other. What I find is that many conflicts, not all, but many are simply because we don't understand each other. We don't listen to each other. We're so busy making my own point, so busy trying to win an argument. And so often, conflicts are from simply not understanding what the other person is doing. So when I do marital work, and I do a fair bit on the pastoral side of my life, or other conflict resolution in my church consulting side of my life, one of the things I'll do is I'll sit people down, and sometimes I do it as mechanically as give a ball. And I give the ball to, say, the woman first. Say it's a marital relationship. Okay, you got the ball. That means you talk. You listen, the husband. So she says something about what her, pers- her perspective is. His job is to listen and repeat back what she just said in his own words. It's no way to say, well, I understand you, dear, because you don't know whether you understand her or not. But when you repeat it back, and then she listens, and then she says, no, that's not it. How come? Her position just changed. See, it's a moving target when you're doing these kinds of things. But I don't know exactly what I'm thinking or feeling, and part of this process is getting that figured out. So he is helping her state her position well, and he's saying it back in his own words to see if he understands. It's amazing what happens. And when she says, yes, you understand me, then she hands the ball to him. And you start it from his side. He expresses his position, she repeats it back in her own words until both say, yes, you understand me. It's amazing how many conflicts disappear at that point. Or even if they don't disappear, now you've got a unity of persons going after the issue, which is something else. Understanding each other. Can you do this? Really? Where might I be wrong in attitude or action or belief? It's only by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of a conflict or argument that you can look and say, well, maybe I'm wrong at this point. It's always there. We have courage enough to address it. What can I or we do to glorify God and be like Jesus in this situation? What an incredible difference that makes when you're dealing with conflict. Whether it's an elder board, I mean, we meet up here in our elder board, and we've got a very honest interaction in our elder board, and one of our things is we'll always express our differences of opinions, but we'll always try to do it respectfully. And we always do it in the context of how would Jesus do that? It's amazing. The unity that we have, even when we profoundly disagree on some things. A fifth point: focus on agreements. Write them down. See so what you're looking for in conflict resolution are those points that we both say, yeah, that's that's true. Or we both say, No, that's not right. Write it down. What's the point? Make it concrete, building blocks. For resolution of conflict comes in the points we agree. Write them down. Emphasize that. Because the serpent wants us to emphasize the points we disagree and what a jerk he is not to understand my position. And where we disagree, we disagree agreeably. <clears throat> a big goal in this thing is to express my view non-attackingly and the other person hear the view non- defensively. But you disagree, but you do it agreeably. Why? Because you're serving Jesus. That's the point that comes out. Always keeping that picture of who I am and whose I am very much in front of me. And finally, get help. It's actually often a matter of pride that we want to hash it out for ourselves. Many times, dealing with conflict means to get help. Sometimes that means a a counselor or mediator. Sometimes it means a pastor to help out. But a lot of times it's just a trusted friend or another family member who's willing to serve as a facilitator of conversation. Get help. Seven simple steps for resolving conflict that Paul illustrates here in his appeal to and Sintke. And that's one of the things that is so important here at Grace. I work with a lot of different churches in my role as a seminary professor and pastor of pastors, and one of the things that I so appreciate about our church is the level of unity that we have here. doesn't mean we agree on everything, but there's a unity behind the difference of perspective or difference of judgment that comes to the fact that we're here with a mission in mind, and that mission is to serve Jesus here in Gresham in East County. And we constantly focus on that. We constantly focus on who Jesus is. And then constantly speak the differences. Instead of hiding the differences, bring them out and speak to them in these kinds of ways. It's amazing what a difference it makes and what a unity it brings. And there's joy in that unity. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Rejoice. And my response to that is, Paul, you simply don't understand the situation. I mean, I can't rejoice. It's so hard. One of my students, Nicole Larson, director of counseling over at River West, she and Eric, amazing couple, two super, super children, came back from the African New Life Gala a week and a half ago. Find their home almost fully involved in flame. These are amazing couple just serve the Lord with incredible faithfulness. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How do you rejoice when you're thank you? How to rejoice when you're out of your home, sleeping in a friend's house. Now they'll be in a hotel or motel, whatever it is, for at least six months. And all the stuff involved when the smoke people come in and they take everything out of your house, everything, invade everything that's private and precious and take it to a place to get the smoke fumes out. Rejoice? you got to be kidding, we say. When I talked to Nicole, just a couple days after that happened, she exhibited the reality of rejoicing and weeping at the same time, but rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. What does that mean? Well, in this context, rejoice is a communal thing. It didn't mean rejoice by yourself, it means join with a community. <clears throat> go to friends. I had a pastor friend of mine tell me that he was at a, a conference in a t- very, very, very difficult time. And the speaker of the conference, they were sitting together at a table, and he was telling a little bit about the circumstance. And the speaker of the conference looked at him and he quoted this verse. And he said, "Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out in the woods by yourself. And I don't want to scream. I want you to scream at the top of your lungs. Praise the Lord." 10 times. My pastor friend looked him in the eye and said, stick it in your nose. (laughs) or words to that effect? He left the meal and went out and the Holy Spirit said, maybe you should try it. (laughs) He came back at supper that evening after the afternoon break and sat down and looked at the speaker with a certain look on his face and said, it didn't work. It took 15 times. (laughs) But see, there's a command there that says rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say pretend like there's no trouble at all. It says remember who God is. It says let your gentleness be known to all. This is being the congregation. When somebody hurting, that gentleness is so very important. A word of how's it going brings a word and a follow-up question bring tears and the gentleness that provides a context for somebody to let the tears and the hurt come out. It leads to a joy and a rejoicing. Because the Lord is near. And I think about this, I don't. even though he just talked about it, I don't think here he's talking about the second coming. I don't think he's saying the second coming is near. I think he's saying the Lord is near. Matthew 28, 19, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And looking for the nearness of the Lord, especially in a horrific situation, like Nicole and Eric's, is such an important thing. The Lord is near. And we affirm that and look for that. It makes quite a difference. Then he says, don't be anxious for anything. We'll unpack that a little bit. Because that one's just, you've got to be kidding. If your house is burned down, and your life is upset, and I mean, your ministry is in shambles because of all the stuff involved, be anxious for nothing. Like, get a life, Paul. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but wait, maybe he did know what he was talking about. <laughs> we'll see as we go in here. He knows a lot about that. What does he say? Present your request to God. See, that's the key. In the concept of anxiety... It's not that you don't have anxiety, it's that you deal with it, and here's a key thing, is present your request to God. How many requests? How many? All of them. You're running late for an appointment, you're in downtown Portland, and you're asking for the impossible parking spot. Can you pray about that? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Will God give you a parking spot? We'll see, but I'm going to tell him I sure need one. That's what it's saying. Is present your prayer and petitions, all of them to God. And the peace of God, which as I understand it, is the Lord's nearness. The peace of God will guard your heart like soldiers, protecting you from attack from the enemy, because the enemy will do everything he can to convince you it's hopeless, bring despair into your life. That's his agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy. Because all this comes together in Christ Jesus. Such a powerful passage. Such a powerful passage. Jesus said this way, don't worry about, don't worry about what? Your life, what you eat or drink, your body, your clothes. That's a pretty good list. I can worry about all of those things. He said, don't worry about those things. He says this, John 14, 1. This is a banner-type passage. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And the way this is often presented is if you believe in God and Jesus, then your heart will not be troubled. You'll have perfect peace, perfect calm, because you're letting it go to Jesus, and therefore you're there. But look at what Jesus did in John chapter 11. After Lazarus died, Martha and Mary came to him, and Mary came to him weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Does Jesus believe in God? Does Jesus believe in Jesus? Why is he so troubled? Why is he not a few tears running down his cheeks, but sobbing? at the presence of death. In the garden, Jesus said to his disciples, I prayed to Peter, James, and John along with him and began to become deeply distressed and troubled, crying out to his friends and his father, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What does it mean, let not your heart be troubled, when that is going to be his experience just a few hours later? think it helps to put it in context. At that last supper, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Very true, I tell you, one is going to betray me. And he's troubled just minutes before he says, let not your heart be troubled. And what happens when I put that in context a few verses later, verse 33, this is what Jesus said, my children, speaking to the disciples, I'll be with you only a little longer. You look for me, just as I told the Jews, and I tell you now where I am going. You cannot come. What's he saying? I'm going to leave you. That's why they're troubled. Jesus said, I'm going away. And they rightfully were troubled. What does this mean? And then what happened? Jesus says this, let not your heart be troubled, because I'm going away, and says I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And this is never let your heart be, this is not saying never let your heart be troubled. What it is saying is look for a context, look for the trouble and the joy that's there. So this is, I think about it worry or anxiety, in the sense he's talking about here, is allowing my mind to dwell in difficulty, forgetting the joy. And that's the serpent's agenda. That's the world and the flesh of the devil are trying to get that to be. It's trying to get me to forget the joy points and only look at the trouble points. And then giving us a bad time because we are, still have worry or anxiety. Right? Right? Charlie Brown, my anxieties have anxieties. Social phobia, we call it. Overwhelmed by what else is saying, what they're rolling their eyes about, how their body language says you don't rate. My anxiety looks more like this. The thoughts that will not stop at two o'clock in the morning. What does he say? Don't worry, it seems mean. me, means direct my thoughts. It doesn't mean deny the troubles it doesn't mean not have anxiety it doesn't mean that at all that's why he says with prayer and petition present them to the Lord direct my thoughts like what well pray what is prayer family fellowship and when I pray especially in community I remember who I am and whose I am which is a foundation of joy and peace I give thanks Because the Satan's agenda is to help me see only the burned house, the Messiah who has left. When I give thanks, I also remember what God does, and that makes all the difference. Doesn't mean I give thanks for cancer. Doesn't mean I give thanks for a burned house. Doesn't mean I give thanks those things. It means I give thanks for God's presence in those things. It also means. Think God things, which helps me understand what God gives. These are the kinds of things that I think are the response that lead us to this concept of, of joy, rejoice. I look at this passage as you thought through it. And it's so powerful, especially in a context like ours, where there is so much anxiety and anger in our culture around. I think a big piece of that is because we've taken in our civil religion, we've taken we've purposely taken Christianity out of the civil religion and replaced it with paganism. So it's combativeness instead of community. It's me instead of serving. The basic covenant parts of our community, church, marriage, family, are being eroded in our society. What is our response? Rebuild those kinds of things. Live out the virtues that it talks about here. Jesus says this, don't worry about these things. He said, look at the birds. So I ask myself, If I worry like a bird, how would I worry? Do birds worry about global warming? Do they worry about what's going on in Washington, DC? No. Do they worry about where seed's going to be tomorrow? No, but they do worry about where seed is today. They don't send their beaks open waiting for something to fall into it. And they go hop around anxiously, perhaps, looking for seeds. They do. Worship team, you want to come up here while I'm finishing up here? What do birds worry about? What do birds worry about? I mean, big time. What do birds worry about? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Should a bird worry about a cat or a hawk or whatever? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Should worry about the presence of Satan in our world. Yeah. There are things to worry about. It's thing to worry about the right thing in the right way. Who's that? (laughs) A couple years ago, that little mole on the side of my head, melanoma. Melanoma is one of those cancers that doesn't play by the rules. There's no chemo for it. There's no cure for it, except surgery. And two years ago, the doctor took out a big piece of skin here on the side of my head and took out the downstream lymph node and found more melanoma. Stage three. Once it spreads, melanoma is a very aggressive cancer. Took out the rest of the downstream lymph nodes and didn't find anything there. What does that mean? Do not be anxious for anything. Some lessons I picked up out of that as I thought about this passage. Peace is perceiving his presence, and it will guard my mind in the midst of troubling things. There are troubling things, and some lessons I got, first of all, is go to the past looking for lessons, not regrets. Easiest thing in the world for me to go back and say, I should have listened to my pretty wife and asked the doctor about that mole two years earlier. And maybe it wouldn't have gone past that thing and wouldn't have spread. And I go back and shred myself pretty effectively. See, that's exactly what Serpent wants me to do. I refuse to do that. I go back looking for lessons. What's that? Go to the doctor and let him look at this again. I go to the future. And I go with a plan based on what I know. Critically important. I realized that Satan dwells in the what-ifs. After I talked with Nicole after her house burned, I really found myself, in, what if our house burned? See, Satan dwells there. Refuse to go there with him. Tell those what-if thoughts. Treat them like cockroaches. What do you do with a cockroach if you see it in your house? Kill it. Kill those thoughts. Reject them in Jesus' name. Jesus lives in the present. look for the glimmers of his grace in those dark places. Four lessons from my melanoma. What I'd like to do here for a couple minutes, I'd like you to focus on this passage. I'd like you to take your sermon notes. I'd like to take a moment here and have you, before the Lord Jesus Christ, just ask him if there's a spot where there's a conflict in your life that you're not addressing well, is there a point of anxiety that you're not doing the sort of things we've talked about? And let's just take a, a moment of silence here. Write some things down on that note. Write some things down where as the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And then we'll come back and sing in just, just a, in a couple minutes. As you... Continue your pondering and note-taking. I was pondering this passage, and one of my Pandora channels is Adria Saad, daughter of a Syrian refugee. Amazing, amazing talent for writing songs that get under my skin and into my spirit. Just a few days ago on her Instagram feed, she put this out. Welcome to the sweet baby Camellia St. Clair. Camellia is Arabic for complete. Claire is Latin for clear. Our daughter was born October 19th. After whirlwind labor, she's a peaceful little lamb and we're so unutterably grateful for her presence already. She tweeted out. The next day she tweeted this. Plum tuckered. The joy of her new little baby girl to go with her older brother and the plum tuckered. Her song is one of the verses. When all the world is under fire and the skies are threatening the thunder and rain and I'm overcome by fears that I can't see. If everything is yours, that's the title of the song, I'm letting it go. Sarah, sing for